Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Hello, Buddhist Geeks, and hello, Stephen Batchelor. Stephen, thank you so much for joining uh, uh, this conversational series on ethics that I've been uh, conducting and, and inviting a lot of different people and perspectives. Um, it's really great to have your voice on the show again and to, uh, to kind of explore some stuff with you. Well, thank you, Vince. No, it's, uh, it's good to be here. And hello, all you Buddhist geeks out there. Yeah, awesome. So, um, man, it's, it's, been a, it's been a while since I've seen you in person. I think it was 2012 when you came to the Buddhist Geeks Conference and gave a keynote. Um, and since we've talked a few times, um, the most recent one, most recent conversation we had was about this topic and kind of preparing um, for the mm-hmm. conversation. And um, part of the reason I reached out to you um, to talk about this is because as I was starting to think about um, the series on ethics, I heard uh, I heard someone I can't remember who said this that part, your your latest um, your latest book which came out last fall after Buddhism um, was in some ways trying to do for ethics and Buddhist philosophy you know what mindfulness has been doing for meditation which is to kind of bring it into contemporary times. And I don't know if you would describe the purpose of the book that way, but that's kind of got me thinking that'd be a really interesting conversation to to have about, mm-hmm. like, what does it mean to secularize Buddhist ethics? Or um, is there something that can be secularized there? What, is, what, what, what does that mean? Um, so m- maybe before we kind of jump into the really hard questions, okay. uh, <laughs> I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about, um, yeah, in doing the research for this and kind of in your thinking about this, how, how are you thinking about ethics um, generally? Um, because, you know, we, we started this series off with a kind of um, a- antithetical kind of perspective, which is that Buddhist ethics, in some ways, the way it's practiced now um, in the West, it doesn't really, it's not really all that different in any significant way from what most people already understand as secular ethics. So in a sense, Buddhist ethics is kind of a fraud. Um, but but what you're doing, the project you're doing seems to be quite different because you're, you're going kind of backwards in time and trying to kind of find a, uh, find a kind of spark in the early Buddhist uh, conception and, and sort of bring that to, to today, I guess. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, that's um, a fairly good summary, actually. And um, uh, I think a lot of the time, uh, while I was um, a more traditional kind of Buddhist, uh, there wasn't really much of a distinction made, if any distinction made, really, between morality and ethics. And ethics uh, was almost treated as synonymous for morality. If you lead an ethical life, it leads you means you lead a moral life. And that is a distinction or a failure to make a distinction that we find in, uh, in our contemporary society as well. But it actually rather is it is actually rather different from, uh, for example, how the Greeks understood ethics. Uh, and that has led me really to try to rethink what Buddhist ethics versus, say, Buddhist morality might be. If we think of morality as, um, as basically a, a precept-based 
uh, way of uh, leading one's life. In other words, you're a moral person in Buddhist terms if you refrain from killing and stealing and abusing people and lying and taking intoxicants. That would be the basic Buddhist lay morality. And to follow those rules would qualify you as a good ethical Buddhist. Mm. Now, that's fine, um, but I don't think it goes very very deep, uh, even in terms of uh, early Buddhism itself. My sense is that the Buddha was not uh, concerned primarily with offering people a set of moral rules to uh, live by, but he was seeking to outline uh, a way of life that we might loosely term a good life. And the realization through one's thought and through one's practice of a good life is what strictly speaking, would be called ethics. Ethics is really uh, how do we flourish as human individuals and as human communities in a way that enables us to realize our conception of what we think of as the good. And um, this, I feel, is a good description pretty much of what the Buddha called the Eightfold Path. And to some extent, I think, therefore, Buddhist uh, practice or the Dharma is essentially an ethical practice. Uh, it includes, on occasion, uh, taking moral precepts and so on. And if you're a monk, that would entail taking quite a lot of precepts. But that's not the same as the ethical vision uh, of the Dharma. The way in which I would suggest a secular ethics in Buddhism would uh, play out would not be so much in terms of what a good life might be conceived of, and it may still include the uh, observing of certain moral precepts, but it would be different in the sense of the goals to which uh, it was finally directed. In other words, a traditional Buddhist ethic would be one that, whether this is explicit or implicit, would be to Find a way of life that would lead you to the ending of suffering, that would lead you to the uh, cessation of, of the cycle of birth and death, that would free you from the uh, drivenness of karma and craving. And that would be considered to be the good. That's the aim uh, of traditional Buddhism. It's also, of course, pretty much the aim of traditional uh, Hinduism, Jainism, and so on. Now, a secular Buddhist ethics would not have that goal for the simple reason that it would not uh, premise uh, its uh, sense of human life upon cycles of rebirth or laws of karma, but it would seek to lead a life uh, in which we optimize our capacity for um, living in a way that's caring and wise and compassionate and concerned with the suffering of oneself and others, and in fact, all beings who inhabit this earth that we share together. Um, a secular approach uh, would not entertain any ideas that there is or there isn't a life after death, but would see the field of its practice as exclusively focused on the suffering uh, of self and others here and now on this earth, but also, and this is an important point, um, it, it would also focus upon how we leave this earth for others after our own demise. And so in that sense, it does concern itself with uh, what happens after death, but not in a way that in, uh, envisages that you somehow magically carry on in some form, uh, but in, fact, in the fact that you as a 
is a responsible, empathetic person, are concerned about how you will leave this earth uh, once you are gone and how others will consequently experience the results of what you and others have done during your lifetime. So uh, that to me is the main difference. It's basically about setting a, a different goal for the practice, um, parting company perhaps with a lot of traditional Buddhist ideas, but seeking to respond to the situation we find ourselves in now in a way that is informed by uh, Buddhist practice, Buddhist philosophy, uh, Buddhist meditation, and Buddhist ethics. Uh, and uh, of course, because we've changed the goal, we've moved the goalposts uh, somewhat significantly. This will require a certain amount of rethinking uh, what we mean by ethics. But I do think it's fair to say that uh, I see my project um, as one in which I would like to secularize Buddhist ethics, Buddhist philosophy, in such a way that their insights and their values would become transparent and accessible to people who don't necessarily consider themselves Buddhists and who certainly would not uh, have a default uh, understanding of themselves in the world as one that extends over many lifetimes. Okay. And, and it seemed like as I was kind of digging down into into your writing and talking about this that i mean one of the core points you you seem to make again and again is that in your reading of of the buddha he wasn't so much uh interested in metaphysics or a metaphysician he wasn't um kind of trying to lay out this vision of the world uh and the cosmos and say this is the way things are mm -hmm. therefore you know this is how we we should we, we should, should act. Yeah, <laughs> it was exactly. sort of some sort of reversal of that, or you know, uh, tell me about yeah. I'm, I'm curious because you know that seems to be a core point um, that metaphysics isn't the kind of driver of the Buddhist you know kind of early Buddhist conception of ethics. Clearly, that's not how it's often practiced and understood now. Um, as you said, you know, with rebirth and karma. Although in in the West, I mean, my experience is very much. That rebirth and karma aren't haven't been a central part of the of the of the training centers and, mm -hmm. and places I've gone to. Um, yeah, what, what's up with that? Okay, well, look, I think the first point to make uh, is is a very important one uh, because it's quite true that a lot. If you go to a Buddhist center uh, nowadays, uh, you probably won't be given the standard pitch about reincarnation and karma and these things. Um, that has been somewhat marginalized, um, and I think it's often. Uh, you know, an understanding from traditional Buddhist teachers that Westerners are not, A, terribly interested in these things, uh, B, are likely to sort of disagree with them if they're presented, and that in terms of living a good life here and now, they don't matter enormously. Uh, some teachers now would uh, treat karma rebirth more symbolically uh, and see every moment as a potential moment for rebirth or whatever. Um, now, that's all very well, but the problem is that you can take out that superstructure but the trouble is that there are other unstated um, uh, values or goals that um, are left intact. In other words, you still continue to think the same kind of way. You've just removed some of the language. And what I feel problematic, therefore, um, is that uh, the, um, the, the tradition might be willing to suspend these things, but it doesn't really change its core attitude regarding uh, metaphysical truth claims. Uh -huh. um, that's the problem. And um, 
I think it's not exactly uh, uh, unusual to re recognize that the Buddha was very, uh, had a lot of questions about the necessity for metaphysics. We have the uh, the 10 or sometimes 14 questions he refuses to comment on, which are essentially metaphysical questions. How did the universe yes. begin? Is it finite? Is it inf infinite? Do the mind, are the mind and the body the same or different? Here we're getting actually quite close into rebirth territory because you'd have to settle that question before you could have a, a coherent understanding of what rebirth is. The mind has to somehow be separate from the body. Um, and the Buddha really was just saying, look, that really doesn't concern me. That's not actually the point. And as an, as an example, he gives this famous parable of the arrow where he says a person has been struck by a poisoned arrow. Uh, his friends bring a surgeon to remove it and he says to them, I won't let you take it out until I know the name of the person who shot it, what kind of bow it was, what kind of arrow it was. And he spins this out ad absurdum. And so, uh, you know, he, he then says, look, if it's the same with these sorts of questions. Um, you can spend the rest of your life trying to figure out, let's say, whether the world has a beginning or an end, whether the mind and the body are the same or different, but it won't help you at all in actually removing the arrow of uh, pain or dukkha or craving. Um, so we have here already um, a, a deep suspicion voiced by the Buddha himself about the need to hold on to certain metaphysical views, things you can neither prove nor disprove, uh, ideas you just take on as a consequence of belonging to a certain culture, in this case, Indian culture. Uh, but actually, they have no bearing whatsoever on the actual practice itself, which is to remove the arrow of craving. And yeah, I should specify the arrow in the metaphor uh, refers to craving. It doesn't refer to suffering. And um, But often what's forgotten there too is that uh, the removal of the arrow of craving um, is also not the goal. Of the path. The goal of the path is to get better. The goal of the person on the ground with the poisoned arrow is to get rid of the arrow, get rid of all of the poisons that might have lodged in the body, in order that he or she can then lead a, a, a fulfilling and flourishing human life. And that is ethics. So, in other words, the problem with craving is not that it causes suffering, that's Buddhist metaphysics. And uh, we'll find that even in people who do not uh, teach rebirth and karma, or at least explicitly, they'll usually uh, still hold the view that the, uh, the aim of Buddhism is to get rid of suffering and the origin of suffering is craving. Therefore, if you rid yourself of craving or if you don't give in to craving, then you will somehow resolve the question of suffering. Now, that to me is already embedded in the metaphysics of uh, karma and rebirth. And so... I'm questioning not just the karma rebirth uh, story. I'm also questioning the need to hold onto a view that craving is the origin of suffering, which frankly, I think is just as much a metaphysical claim as uh, God created heaven and earth. It's making a generalized statement about suffering, which the Buddha describes as birth, sickness, aging, death, basically the totality of our experience. And Metaphysically, Buddhists maintain that the cause or the origin of that is uh, craving or grasping, which is often then understood as based on ignorance and so on. So that metaphysics is still in place. And until you 
begin to question that, you'll still be, in a sense, working within the traditional metaphysical frame of uh, Buddhism, and also, which is also the same as the traditional metaphysical frame of most Indian religions. Um, a secular approach to the Dharma would dig deeper than karma and rebirth and would actually question some of these core beliefs of Buddhists, which I think are actually more uh, you know, uh, are, are more significant in this regard. So in my take of the uh, parable of the man wounded by the arrow is not that by removing the arrow, he removes craving and thereby stops suffering. I don't think that goes far enough. I think that's actually just a, a moment in a much uh, longer and uh, far-reaching process, which uh, would be one of removing craving in order that you are then uh, free to lead a healthy life. In other words, the problem with craving is not that it causes you pain. The problem with craving is that it actually inhibits or blocks or stunts you in such a way that you get caught into cyclical, uh, repetitive patterns of thought and behavior that do not allow you the freedom to enter into the stream of the path and to thereby flourish in terms of your thinking and your speech and your acts and your livelihood in, in a way that's no longer determined by your reactivity, by the reactive patterns that uh, are generally associated in traditional Buddhism with craving. So there we have already uh, opened up a whole different perspective on what it means to practice the Dharma on what it means to flourish as a human being. Um, and again, we can now do this without any implicit or explicit uh, uh, framing uh, by, the, uh, by doctrines that are effectively derived from uh, Indian cosmology, classical Indian cosmology. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, and I guess a question that comes up is, you know, in thinking about what you're doing, do you see your translation project, um, I, I call it that, I don't know if you'd call it that. But mm -hmm, this, no, I do actually. Yeah, this translation project yeah. of, is, is it that you're tr translating the, um, to a secular metaphysics, or is it that you're trying to kind of remove the metaphysics altogether? No, I think we have to be quite honest here, and that is I think it's quite impossible to conceive of a human life that does not hold certain metaphysical assumptions. And uh, the metaphysics of our age, our secular metaphysics, is basically one in which we uh, believe in the Big Bang and we believe in the expansion of the universe and we believe in the beginnings of, uh, of, of single cell life in the oceans on the early earth, which then evolve into uh, higher forms of life and primates and uh, homo sapiens which is us. And, um, and this is a process we understand purely in naturalistic mm. uh, terms. We don't require there to be an animating God um, or consciousness to kickstart the Big Bang. We don't require there to be anything other than basically uh, atoms and void uh, to account for the complexity of life we experience on Earth now. Now, that is a metaphysical belief. Um, I can't, you know, I can't prove that. If I met someone, right. and I have, I've discussed this with Tibetan lamas, and uh, you know, for them, you know, I seem to be ju ju just as incapable of um, 
presenting uh, or a convincing account of, of that metaphysics as uh, they seem incapable to me of presenting a convincing account of rebirth and karma. We are always as human persons embedded in a set of assumptions and beliefs. Uh, they're not beliefs in the sense that we struggle to sort of hold on to them, but they simply come with the cultural environment of which we are a part. We don't really feel any need to question them. They work pretty well um, uh, in, in our society, in our world. There's the, and they have the, you know, and also, the, frankly, they have the great advantage, the secular ethical metaphysics, um, of, 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 of being founded on empirical observation, being testable, and the whole scientific uh, view of things. Now, I could, have, of course, be entirely blinkered. I might be missing something very important here. And um, uh, in, few, in 100 years' time, people might look back on this and say, well, that was a really strange way to look at the world. That could be the case. But the point is we have to work with the conditions under which we find ourselves, in which we are embedded uh, in this short stay on life. Uh, and, and what I find is that that metaphysics, as it were, um, is entirely compatible uh, with a Buddhist uh, practice. Uh, this is the point. You see, I think the, uh, the, the point that's really being made by the Buddha is that irrespective of your metaphysics, and he probably acknowledges, yes, we've, we can't live without some sort of metaphysical assumptions. But irrespective of what those assumptions are, the practice of the Dharma is still uh, very much uh, a way of life that you can lead and that can enable you to flourish. It can enable you to lead a good life. It can enable you to lead a, a wise, compassionate life and so on. And that's really what matters. Um, I suspect the Buddha... Uh, did accept the metaphysics of uh, ancient Indian cosmology. In many suttas, he speaks of those things as though that's just taken for granted, really. What's striking when you read the early suttas is the Buddha never uh, sort of steps back and says, okay, bhikkhus, I'm going to teach you about rebirth and karma. He doesn't do that. Hmm. In fact, when he does talk about karma, it actually turns out to be a much more of a psychological idea. Karma or action for the Buddha is intention. It's something to observe. Uh, he states elsewhere that uh, you can see for yourself the results of what you do. You can see for yourself where your experiences come from. You don't need to uh, uh, appeal to some higher authority or some mystical laws to explain these things. They're, they're, they're sort of self-evident. Um, now, that's certainly an element in the early suttas that you can find, but I will accept that it's not the dominant uh, narrative. Uh, the dominant narrative is still very much couched in the language of uh, his period, which is hardly surprising. Um, but I do think we can look at the Dharma from a historical critical perspective uh, and we can uncover within it uh, an adequate framework for leading a full human life without ha having to struggle with believing or even disbelieving the metaphysics of ancient India. Okay, interesting. So this 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 is where yeah, this is where I start getting excited and anxious um, in the conversation uh -huh. because um, you know my focus in the last couple of years has been reading and, and contemplating some things around you know um, metaphysics and ethics and, and life in general that that are kind of uh, questioning the very foundations of of the metaphysical assumptions of our time mm -hmm. and I, I thought i thought i'd share this little um passage with you um from a book that i that i really uh found difficult but but really interesting by a, a couple swedish philosophers 
Um, it's called Synthism, the book, Creating God in the Internet Age. Mm-hmm. And, and this is what um, the authors Alexander Bard and Jan Soderquist, they, they sort of lay this out about, about the Western Enlightenment and metaphysics. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. Um, they say when, when the Enlightenment, meaning the Western Enlightenment, eliminates God as the cohesive factor for metaphysics, uh, either as the deists do by anesthetizing him mm-hmm. or as the atheists do by killing him off, <laughs> the focus is shifted onto the individual, the idea of man himself as the existential atom and the very cornerstone of existence in the social model. Thus, metaphysics no longer allows any angels who come to prophets to hand down the truth, or I guess in, in the case of your describing with the Indian metaphysics, you know, no, no longer is the karma and rebirth and you know, the, the whole cosmological model. Um, man must instead construct his own metaphysics, and man reckons that this is best done by deriving the truth directly from his or her own life world, by basing a worldview on empirical facts and defending it with logical arguments, what, kind of what you're describing. Mm-hmm. However, this ambition requires in itself an unfounded and illogical faith in man's innate ability to take in and understand all of life with his limited intellect and imperfect access to information. This blind faith is rationalism, the irrational core of individualist metaphysics that gives the individual divine qualities. The individual is made into a being that suddenly grasps, comprehends, and has mastered absolutely everything in her own wishful thinking. Yeah, well, you see, I mean, that's very well stated, and it's very articulate, and I'm I'm actually rather curious to get the details on that book. I'd like to read it. But um, what strikes me, and I don't want to make a generalized uh, statement about these authors in this book that I haven't read. Sure, sure. um, But just this little fragment here, where I would, I think, part company is uh, with their insistence on, uh, 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 on, on this notion of truth, on the idea that uh, the, the, the way that the modern individual seeks to live his or her life um, is based upon their belief or their unstate, the unstated assumption that their rational minds have the capacity to access uh, the nature of what is the case or truth in the world, and that then becomes the foundation for uh, their their ethics and how they would make choices and what they would see of as valuable and so forth and so on. Um, I don't think that's the Buddha's approach. Um, I think the Buddha's approach is actually far more based not on rationality but on empathy. And this is why the Buddha starts with dukkha. He starts with suffering. Uh, He's not concerned with uh, what is the case in the world. He's concerned with the fact that you and and, and I uh, and others and all sentient life, in effect, um, experiences dukkha experiences suffering, experiences pain, anxiety, however we, we, we describe that. And that's the foundation of his ethics. Um, so it, it's, it, it's that empathetic capacity to identify with the pain and the suffering of others that then leads you to the question, okay, how do I live uh, in a way that most appropriately addresses that? Uh, condition. It's got nothing to do with rationality. Okay, because because it sounds. I mean, it sounds like to me. I, I would sort of disagree with you because it sounds like to me it does. You know, to mm-hmm. to take that observation which he's you know made in his own experience and 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 likewise in others, and to extend that um, in a universal way to all of life. 
Mm -hmm. How can you do that without a rational framework and without making certain kind of rational deductive, you know, deductive kind of leaps, you know, of like this is a universal thing, this is a universal truth, and that's ra that's a rational claim. It is. No, I agree with you. It, it is a rational claim, and um, and I guess to that extent, the Buddha was um, a rationalist. Um, but you see, I don't. I think the thing we're disagreeing on not it's not so much that it's on the question that it's the uh, it's, it's the truth in a sense that matters, the truth of suffering rather than suffering itself. Uh, that I think is an, a distinction that can quite. Uh, uh, quite helpfully be made. Um, no, you're right. Um, and again, I do think one comes away on reading these early Buddhist dialogues uh, that the Buddha clearly has a highly evolved uh, intellect. He's a very rational person. He makes his point usually through dialogue and argumentation. So yeah, I agree. Uh, there is a, a basis of rationality there. Um, but I Although that may be the working assumption that suffering, for example, is a, a generalized uh, condition of all beings, um, it's also more borne out by being open and uh, sensitized and empathetic towards how people and other creatures feel uh, rather than uh, convincing or concerning oneself primarily that, you know, that is a universal truth. Now, that may, right. you could debate that if you wanted, but I don't think that's really, that's a second order concern. The first order concern uh, is, the, uh, is the primacy of your encounter and your openness and your willingness to uh, engage uh, with the suffering of, other, of others. And um, irrespective of whether you think that's universally true or false or whatever, that's the, that's the starting point. And I think the the metaphor of the guy with the arrow, again, points to that. The starting point is the pain. Uh, the starting point is that. How do I respond to that? And again, I think one of the, if you look at traditional Buddhist morality slash ethics, I'm not going to tease them apart uh, uh, with this particular example. You have two ways of going about this. You have the traditional view that um, you don't kill someone because that will generate bad consequences for you effectively in some later point either in this or in a future lifetime and so your restraint against killing stealing lying etc is because of the negative consequences that those actions will have upon you at a later point now you do find elements of that uh, right throughout uh, uh, buddhism even the earliest texts uh, but that's more characteristic of the worldview of ancient india now what's the starting point I would take for Buddhist ethics would be uh, statements that you find, uh, for example, in the Sutta Nipata, there is a famous statement where the Buddha says, just as I am, so are you, just as you are, so am I. By identifying with others, you do not kill or cause to kill. Mm -hmm. That's where I would start. And this starts with basically a capacity to empathize with the other. In other words, to recognize that just as I am, so are you. This is the golden mean. This is do unto others as you would have them do to you. You find it in Christianity. But this is about 400 years earlier. This is in one of the earliest Buddhist texts. And I feel that uh, here we have a foundation for an ethic that is once again explicitly founded on the capacity to empathize with the suffering of the other. And in practice, it doesn't mean all sentient beings. It means the other 
who is in your uh, uh, field of awareness at this moment. Uh, how do I respond to that? How do I respond to my own suffering? What do I do? There you have the beginnings of ethics. Um, okay, as a second order truth, you might then uh, in, infer that all beings suffer and that that is the truth of things. That may, or, that may be the case. But I still think the truth claim is uh, subordinate to the claim of actual empathetic experience and feeling, which is where you begin, where Buddhist meditation and mindfulness and awareness are primarily focused, where um, the freeing of craving and grasping and hatred and so on are actually limiting factors in your capacity to lead a fully ethical life. Okay, cool. I, to, to me, I don't feel, I don't see a way to really separate those, those, those things, the empathy and the rationality, but uh-huh. uh, we can come back to that. Because we can I, come back to that. Yeah, yeah, we can come back to that. Um, I, I'm, I was curious to kind of throw, throw another idea in the pot, um, which is, you know, in a sense that this, this sort of ethical approach that you're talking about, you know, of really being able to identify with the other and, and thus um, kind of, start to act in a very different way that that in a way i mean what's so profound about that that there's that that is a divergent um way of conceiving and experiencing reality um from many past cultures that existed prior you know and, and like if you look at the history of violence for instance you know stephen pinker um, wrote an interesting book about mm-hmm. how, how violence per capita has declined a tremendous amount. You know, the early, you know, early uh, human cultures, there are you know, a huge percentage of, of deaths by violence. And that sort of seems to indicate that that was not how they <laughs> viewed reality or it's not the, the situation they found themselves in where they could really be like, okay, you know, like that person is the other. It's like, okay, I need to eat and that person's standing in the way. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was seen to be more of the primary uh, way of way of relating. So, I mean, in a way, would you would you would you say that the I mean that those that that way of looking at things really was a powerful kind of step forward in a way, or, or a kind of powerful um, a, a different way of, of of organizing one's life? Yeah, I think it was, and I don't think it's exclusive to Buddhism. I think it's characteristic of what is sometimes called the axial age. Yes. I think this was a shift from a power-based uh, relationship to life to a compassion-based relationship to life. Mm. Uh, this is uh, how Karen Armstrong would present it in, in her rather good book on that topic. Um, and certainly, I think it was a major shift in mm. human consciousness. Uh, but that, in a sense, only reinforces your point, namely that um, what that point, this, this axial point of shift from power to compassion uh, came about as a reaction to, a very deep reaction to, the preponderance of violence in the world. In other words, people, uh, some people, exceptional people, Chuang Tzu, the Buddha, Socrates perhaps, uh, were those first human beings to recognize that, you know, we can live another way. Uh, we, we don't have to just uh, premise our lives on getting what we want, destroying, killing those who get in the way, and uh, this is a very, very deeply uh, uh, rooted uh, behavioral strategy of Homo sapiens. I don't know whether you've re- read this recent book by a fellow called um, Harari, uh, Yuval Harari, an, is- uh, an Israeli historian who's published this book called Sapiens, 
It's a marvelous account of human beings um, and how effectively we are basically very rapacious predators. And we have been very bad news for many other life forms on this earth. Everywhere we go, we kill most things. And um, the axial age, Christianity, Buddhism, Greek philosophy, uh, Confucianism, these are the moments in human history where our consciousness got to the point where we said, no, this is not the way to live. This is not a way that is, in a, is, is enabling uh, a real human flourishing or understanding to emerge. So they stood up to that. And then you get, do unto others as you would have them do to yourselves. Or just as I am, so are they, just as they are, so am I. Uh, across these axial cultures, uh, it was the it, empathy really, I think, is what shifted uh, the perspective from a predominance on power and violence to one on compassion and concern. And Buddhism is one instance of that. Um, so um, it, it, it's difficult to live this way. Uh, and I suspect even today, I think, although we have a veneer of civilization, I mean, Pinker's book is very interesting because he does seem to track empirically that violence has decreased. But the reason for that has as much to do, I think, with the capacity of the state to monopolize violence. That's one uh, extraordinary important feature. Uh, and I don't really want to get into his arguments, which I think are very interesting and good. Um, and I'd like to think that slowly this axial intuition of empathy uh, trumping, as it were, uh, violence, um, uh, may be bearing some fruit. But I don't think we should be too naive in thinking that those deeply instinctive patterns of selfishness, violence, greed, hatred, and delusion, as the Buddhists call them, uh, will suddenly somehow vanish. Uh, what we know from uh, biology is that these uh, instinctive survival drives are embedded in our limbic systems uh, of our brains. Uh, they're going to be with us for a long time. In Buddhism, they're characterized as Mara, the demonic. Uh, and even after the Enlightenment, the Buddha's still working with Mara. In fact, you know, pretty much you know, most of the time, actually. <laughs> so, um, the, uh, so we mustn't underestimate, uh, we, we must not romantically think that people living in earlier times were all compassionate and loving. I think that is nonsense. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I think we need to recognize the extraordinary uh, cultural, religious, philosophical shift that took place about two and a half thousand years ago when human beings decided to think differently, to try to live differently, to try to uh, give rise to communities that were not premised on violence. But we're still, I think, far from being out of the woods on that particular point. Okay, great, great. That, that's a good segue um, because, you know, to go, going back to that point of, of rationality and empathy, you know, in, in my mind, they're, they're kind of, they're, they're merged or they're two, diff two different ways of getting to the same thing, which is, you know, the ability to identify with the other, it, it can be done empathetically. It can also be done from a cognitive perspective. You know, I can put my, I can put myself in your shoes in different ways. You know, I can feel mm -hmm. your pain or your confusion or your frustration, but I can also imagine, you know, cognitively, what is it like to be Stephen and to, to think in the way he does based on what I know about you. Um, and in a way, like in both cases, I, I get to know you better and I begin to to see, you know, the the distinction between us, you know, blurs and fades a little bit. And it's like I don't want to hurt Stephen if I can help it. <laughs> I like this guy. Um, that said, I also like, you know, exploring, um, you know, 
these topics in terms of what what, what ethics, you know, what what is it about t- today's ethical challenges um, that Buddhism has something to offer? And this is where maybe I'd push back a little bit again on on the notion that it's sufficient to translate Buddhist ethics into a rationalist or individual metaphysics or framework, because it, it could also be argued, right, that 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 framework is in a sense what's also gotten us into our current plight, you know, with respect to the growth of capitalism um, and the growth of the state, you know, that's quite predatory. And you said, as you said, monopolizing violence, those are all based on the individualist metaphysics, you know, is, is people in the streets of France saying, hey, no, like, I want to be able to govern myself and not you telling me how this should be done, you know, the God, God empowered king. Um, you know, and, and what the individual created, you know, was the, these very systems that are now um, propelling us toward a potential climate apocalypse. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it maybe I just see those metaphysics of, of rationality as being actually totally failing us right now. Um, well, I, I, I recognize that you do have a, a point there. Um, and uh, But I don't think it fit purely in terms of individualism. I mean, that's what I find a little bit uh, difficult to grasp in what you're saying, um, is that the, is, is the, the rationality is somehow giving primacy to uh, the individual and the individual's desires and so forth and so on. Um, I, to a certain extent, that is true. Uh, but at the same time, I think that rationality, as you also seem to suggest, is something that can be expanded uh, into yes. a cognitive understanding of how others feel and others suffer. And I think we have in our contemporary culture, and I'm not thinking of our contemporary culture as an, you know, sort of an, an unalloyed good thing. Uh, I think we're facing all kinds of enormous problems. But nonetheless, I do think we do live in a culture with communication uh, availability and so on that we can reach out and understand and know others far more than we could in the past. And we do that through, quite simply, reading a novel, watching a movie, um, studying, going, watching a nature program on TV, listening to a podcast, uh, <laughs> listening to a podcast. Good point. Uh, exactly. You see, we have access to knowing the world rationally in a way that way outstrips our individuality. And I would argue that Buddhist uh, metaphysics or let's say Buddhist philosophy um, is a highly rational system. But it's a rational system uh, that seeks to disentangle the concept of self. It's a rational system that seeks to um, envisage a world in which we're all integrated into a network of relationships, which yes. again accords with uh, certain ideas in biology and so on. Yes. So this is still rational, uh, yet it's not individualistic. A reason right. I don't think in, in and of itself is premised upon uh, the, 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 the solitary uh, individual, I think rationality and empathy, when extended beyond the immediate concerns of you and me, yeah. uh, opens us up into a world uh, that, uh, quite correctly, you say, is one that we both feel empathetically uh, through these media, through our encounters with other forms of life, and at the same time, it leads us to think and to reflect and to draw conclusions about the other, uh, the pa- pain of the other, um, in ways that um, extend uh, the reach of our rational minds. Um, just yesterday, I was reading a review of a book about uh, the uh, hus- animal farming in the United States um, by Peter Singer, who's a moral uh, philosopher. 
And um, just reading that thing, I was able, you know, getting the descriptions of what animals are subject to in the meat industry, for example, um, had an enormous impact on me in once again reminding me of what uh, creatures go through uh, in order to serve uh, human greed and, and human uh, craving for meat and so on. Um, and that awoke within me a very strong feeling of, of, of identity and empathy with these creatures. Um, same with Harari in his book uh, Homo Sapiens. He says the most, the most devastating thing that human beings have probably ever done in their history is, um, is mass farming of animals in terms of the extent of suffering induced. So empathy and rationality, I agree, go hand in hand, but I don't believe that rationality um, implies a commitment to the primacy of the individual person. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we could say that that's how it, how it seems to have arisen in history, um, you know, with the Western Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. But, but certain, I, I, I totally am with you. That, that's also my sense, is that that, that 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 frame itself is kind of breaking apart and mm-hmm. there's something like what you're describing as a network like uh, an understanding of ourselves not as individuals but as kind of n- nodes um yes. in this ever feeling network you know that's feel- feeling itself and feeling a lot of pain and suffering exactly yeah i think that's right and, uh, and then here i think this is again another area where buddhist practice somehow comes into its own i mean buddhists have been doing this for a long time uh, disentangling and deconstructing the separate sense of self and at the same time uh, opening themselves up through loving kindness, through compassion, through bodhicitta, uh, with the far greater, almost infinite suffering of others, the philosophy, uh, or if you like, a metaphysics, in which we're all seen to be interacting, interrelated beings in a similar world. I think the, bio- the what we learn from biology, for example, that we are all have arisen out of the same DNA, the same basic molecular structure of life. Uh, to me, that's an enormous insight into how we are really essentially not terribly different at all, uh, not just from each other, but even from blades of grass and carrots and trees and everything. And, and those insights, uh, I think, have uh, consequences in terms of how we feel. So, uh, yeah, what is important really is to get our feeling and our thinking and our acting basically working in alignment, in harmony. Um, And for that, we need, I think, a new, uh, in a sense, uh, philosophy of life. I think Buddhism, if stripped of a lot of its religiosity and a lot of its ancient metaphysical assumptions, can provide at least a kind of working framework for uh, teasing out that kind of uh, ethical philosophical perspective. And Buddhist practices, I think, are crucial because they actually turn those values and ideals into uh, felt experience, into actual personal experience uh, that is not the exclusive preserve of the separate ego but our experiences that in and of themselves begin to erode uh, the, uh, the armor, as it were, the, uh, of the separate self. Um, so that's kind of where I see uh, a secular approach to the Dharma going, to be quite honest. Nice, nice. Well, my, my only hope is that our instit- all of the institutions, we, we can catch up. <laughs> ah, well, that might take time. Um, but we, time is something we don't have a lot of at the moment yeah. in terms of a lot of these impending uh, crises that we are facing. Um, but I think it's, uh, you know, this, I think one has to be passionate about these uh, things. Yes. Uh, and, um, you know, really seek to dedicate one's life 
and into living in a way that is a model for others, um, but also living in a way in which you instantiate these values in your actual person-to-person relationships, in your work environment, in your family environment. Uh, if you can't realize it on the level of your own daily life, it remains kind of a nice idea, uh, but how do we actually translate that into effective action? And that, I think, is the big question. And I would hope um, that uh, we can get some inspiration from some of these Buddhist ideas that might take us forward on that. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.